As we commemorate Africa Liberation Day, we want to discuss how we got here and what China's role was. Welcome to The Crane. Hi everyone, I'm Mika. And I'm Amadeus. And we are the co-hosts of The Crane, News on China Africa, brought to you by the Dongsheng Collective. The friendship can be traced back to 1964, when Tanzania and Zambia declared independence. Zambia, an inland country, is rich in copper reserves. A railway passing through Tanzania was what it needed to earn money from the mines to develop the economy. In 1965, the then president of Tanzania, Julius Nyerere, visited China to ask for help. Two years later, representatives from China, Tanzania and Zambia signed an agreement in which China promised to provide loans without interest and send experts to help build, manage and maintain the line. Greetings again, everyone. Uh, so glad to have our second episode up and running. I am your host, Mikaela Nondo Ershkug, streaming from Johannesburg, South Africa, alongside my fabulous co-host, Amadeus Musumali, in Lusaka, Zambia. Today, we are talking about Africa Liberation Day, which we commemorate on the 25th of May every year. And we want to think about the role of China in our liberation processes, in our historic fight against colonialism and imperialism. Now, Mika, at this point, I got to jump in and ask an obvious question. Did China actually have a role in African liberation? This might shock you and many of our listeners, but China had a very real, very um, asymmetrical, but nonetheless extremely impactful and important role in Africa's liberation. It didn't necessarily happen in all the countries in our in our massive continent of, you know, now we're almost over a billion people and 54 countries and one colony called Western Sahara. But uh, China played a really interesting role that we want to kind of look at in terms of four areas, in terms of the non-alignment movement, in terms of their forms of internationalism, in terms of kind of key historic contributions and moments, as well as how this history kind of impacts us today. And, you know, you uh, are in Zambia, one of what was called one of the frontline states that was liberated early on and who was sitting at the first... Um, meeting of the Organization of African States, what we call today the African Union, in 1963. And it was in that moment, even though we were seeing these waves of liberation happening, half the continent was still going through its own different processes. And China saw that and noted that. And that's part of what we want to discuss today. Indeed. Uh, I remember we actually have an OAU uh, monument in town um, that was put up for one of the anniversaries. So uh, that's a big part of Zambian history and a big part of Southern African, East African history. And it will be very interesting to dive into that and to learn some things that maybe we didn't learn in school. And I mean, you know, we spoke about this the other day. We were producing this thread for our Twitter on uh, one of the early China-Africa interactions um, by, what, what was his name? Zheng He? Zheng He, right? I'm going to try and pronounce this. Please do correct me, Mika, because I believe you actually learned some Mandarin, <laughs> unlike me. I think Zheng He, yeah? Zheng He? Is that, am I saying it right? Zheng He? Zheng He or Zheng He? 
Yeah, I think so. I think so. I need to actually go look at the the, the transliteration if it has the the uppy or the downy or you know there are various ways where you can pronounce her her. In any case, I think what's super important I, that we were discussing the other day is, despite the fact that China has this uh, longer history, national liberation, of course, has a slightly different connotation. Um, but maybe you can tell people a little bit about Zheng He uh, just in a one-liner. Give us a one-liner. Zheng He was awesome. He was this kick-ass Chinese Muslim admiral uh, who went on this massive voyages, several of them, actually voyages of discovery. And in the 14 or 1500s, should I say, uh, he actually came to Africa to the and explored the east coast of Africa. And I mean, like now I know that a, a lot of China critics have spoken about how, you know, perhaps um, the Chinese government is overinflating his role, his diplomatic role in Africa. But fundamentally and ultimately, unlike the Portuguese colonizers who came to seize our territories and take our lands, Zheng He just came for trade. So very different moment, very different historical reference for some of us in Africa, because ultimately we were our labor, our land, our resources was exploited and extracted for the benefit of the West. And that brings us to... Up until today. Up until today. Up until today, Mika. It hasn't stopped. And so that brings us to, I guess, we want to talk about this national liberation moment. Where did we find ourselves, Amadeus, when, you know, China had just been independent in 1949. Most of our African countries had not yet found independence. So what was the kind of early role that they played and what did it look like? Well, as you said, China itself only um, liberated itself from Western and Japanese aggression in 1949. Um, there was a protracted uh, civil war within China with the reactionary forces of the KMT, uh, who were finally defeated in 1949. So we had a, a young communist party in China. We had this moment of sovereignty of freedom, but at a huge cost. World War II, or you know, the war of Japanese aggression, had killed over 20 million people in China. The country was devastated and on its knees. But the success of China's liberation in 1949 served as a great symbol of the fight against imperialism and feudalism. Most of Africa at that time was still colonized, was still direct colonies of uh, the so-called European powers. The idea that a grassroots mass-based struggle could liberate a country, a people, that was a very powerful idea. And I, th I think people nowadays don't really appreciate just how powerful it is to see that this can be done, that people who are peasants, who are farmers, many of them illiterate with very little formal education, can organize, can work together and can free themselves from oppression, from exploitation, from violence. Uh, so when we're looking at post-1949 African liberation struggle, a few African countries became independent, you know, in significant numbers. Uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, we had Sudan, Tunisia, and Morocco, who led the way in uh, 1956, followed by Ghana, very important country to um, African liberation and African freedom and Pan-Africanism in 1957. And, of course, uh, Guinea uh, in 1958. Guinea is also quite important in the Pan-African kind of uh, mythos and alliances. So the floodgates were sort of opened um, for 17 more countries to gain their independence mm. by the 1960s. That was uh, 1964 for Zambia. Uh, and Zambia ended up becoming a very important, as you said, frontline state and base for uh, the liberation struggle and the freedom struggle in the Southern African 
region. And sadly, you know, where I am in South Africa, sadly where we are, it only took us like three, four more decades. <laughs> only in the 90s did we find this liberation. But I will say, and maybe for another episode, is that a lot of um, Africans from South Africa went and had exchanges with China that were really politically important. I mean, uh, they definitely, even though it was protracted, um, gained immensely from the independence movements across the continent. Totally. The whole uh, South African independence movement, the fight against apartheid, was a massive project of international solidarity from Africa, uh, intra-Africa, Africa-Asia, and internationally. So, very important moment. And Don't forget Latin America. Latin America, Cuba, yes, Cuba. yes. Oh, where Operation we, where, Carlota. Oh, wow. Where would we be with our Cubano brothers and sisters, you know? Um, that's, again, another exciting future upcoming episode. So, one important moment in that um, post-World War II era was the 1955 Asia-Africa Conference at Bandung in Indonesia that um, marked the People Republics of China, that is, liberated Free China's first serious involvement in Africa. And it's also the birthplace of something that is very, very well-known and powerful in the African liberation history, and that's the Non-Aligned Movement. So uh, China's premier... Uh, who I think is legendary, uh, Zhu Enlai. Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe. <laughs> he led the Chinese uh, delegation, uh, which met uh, with representatives from six African countries. It was Egypt, Ethiopia, Liberia, Libya, and the soon-to-be independent Sudan and Ghana. Now, uh, Uncle Joe, or Zhu Enlai, uh, convinced the participants to incorporate the PRC's five principles of peaceful coexistence into the 10 principles of Bandung. So China shaped the values, the principles of non-alignment in a very key way here. You know, the original uh, five principles, by the way, remain essential to China's foreign policy. And this is something we, Mika, this is something we don't understand in Africa most of the time. Because many, many people, at least in Zambia, get confused about what is China's foreign policy and what drives China's foreign policy. We're very much used to American and uh, European mm. governments interfering in our internal affairs, telling us what to do, what to think, how to act. So uh, the fact that China has principles that it sticks to, for example, some of these uh, five principles are mutual respect for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all nations, mutual non-aggression, Non-interference in each other's internal affairs. Your business is your business. Equality and mutual benefit, and of course, peaceful coexistence. I mean, this sounds utopian, but when you look at Chinese foreign policy, they're actually sticking to this. And this all goes back as far as 1955 at the Bandung Conference, which I think is amazing. And Amadeus... Perhaps for those who don't know, what does non-alignment mean? I mean, non-alignment and the non-aligned movement essentially is different policies and practices of cooperation that are, as you said in those principles, based on multilateralism, on uh, mutual and beneficial cooperation. And for us right now, in this moment we're living in, it's so important to be reminded of this because we are being asked to participate in a new Cold War um, between uh, predominantly the US-led West and China and right now with Russia and Ukraine and African countries are being asked these difficult questions. So, you know, going back to this history already is giving us a sense of what did African liberation really hinge on and non-alignment was one of those principles or one of those processes. 
Totally, Mika. And, you know, this is something that, like, really, really, really irritates me <laughs> today. Non-alignment was essentially that the non-aligned nations of primarily Africa and Asia said that there is a Cold War going on between the United States-led so-called Western world, including Japan and uh, occupied South Korea, and the Soviet sphere the uh, communist world, so to say, of um, the Soviet Union, of uh, Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and uh, Far Eastern Asia. And the non-aligned movement said that we are not choosing either Washington or Moscow. We're not getting involved in this. Uh, We respect and want to have peaceful coexistence with both sides. But we do not accept domination from either side or uh, this idea that we should participate in this um, low intensity, but always simmering, always threatening to pop off into a nuclear war kind of uh, conflict. And I think that's really, really important in the current moment. Though I I kind of, okay, I think this is another conversation for another day, because I kind of disagree on the case of neither Moscow nor um, Washington, because I do think people took a strategic position, but didn't necessarily mean that they kind of divest from, let's say, the ideological values that were coming out of the socialist and communist camp. Totally agree. But I think that's a different conversation for a different day. That's a different conversation. But what about uh, what actually enabled uh, China to move forward after Bandung? Like, what are some of the opportunities that came out? Well, there's some amazing opportunities that came out. So Bandung was used by China to open trade talks with Egypt and to speak out against colonialism and imperialism in Africa to specifically support the independence movements of Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia. So that's the uh, North African, the so-called Maghreb region, right? And uh, Zhou Enlai also used this opportunity to uphold Egypt's claim to the Suez Canal. This is really, really important because a crisis was already approaching. The canal was owned in inverted commerce by the British and the French who had complete control over it. And of course, the uh, Egyptians, I believe this was under Nasser, wanted to rightfully take control of this national asset. So China actually provided Egypt with a loan of 5 million US dollars. This was a first for for China in Africa, the first time they gave a loan to an African country in support, in solidarity, and they called on the United Kingdom and France to end their aggression. You know, we all know how that ended. This ended up with a so-called Suez crisis where the UK, France, and Israel connived to attack Egypt and uh, to take back control of this canal that had been rightfully, in my opinion, nationalized. So Bandung was a watershed for Chinese diplomacy and its relations with Africa. And Mika, when I read about this, it feels like this was an immense time of possibility and opportunity in the global south, in Africa, in Asia, to say, we're taking charge of our own destiny. There's so much we can do. We can build up our nations. It just staggers the mind. Definitely. I totally agree, especially because, you know, not only was this a moment in which African countries and nations were, you know, as the name of the Burkina Faso is named after, people were standing up, you know, Burkina Faso is named after the land of the upright 
people, people standing up, which sounds so familiar and so similar, actually, to what Mao said about the Chinese people have finally stood up. I think that was his inauguration speech um, in 1949. And so it was an immense, you know, moment, immense possibilities. And definitely, I think the beginning of what we would call the contemporary state relationships, um, political diplomatic relationships between China and African countries. But it was also a challenging time, an extremely challenging time, right? And I want to give the example of Nkrumah, because Nkrumah, amazing Pan-African leader, one of the fathers of, you know, national liberation, who had a really clear plan about how he wanted a radicalized Africa. He wanted to make a United States of Africa where we had the same currency, a shared military, a common bank, all of these things, right? The the same kind of things that um, after his death, I mean, in Libya with the assassination of Gaddafi, Gaddafi essentially was trying to put the oil wealth of Libya into creating a common currency that would actually allow, and a a central bank that would actually allow for a lot of the former Francophone colonies to not depend on the French currency. And then lo and behold, a few days later, he is assassinated by a NATO intervention that was undermined, you know, the AU's decisions. But that's a different tangent. But a very important one. And we are actually still... Uh, receiving facts and reports today of how closely the French, the United States, and the collective West was involved in the destruction of Libya. And indeed, the dream of the United States of Africa seems to be a nightmare for the collective West. But as you said, conversation for another day. Although the last point I'll add to that is that we are trying to get more reports about this. We are trying to get the facts of how these things happened. But the people who tell us the facts, like Julian Assange of WikiLeaks, are the same people who get criminalized by the U.S. government and by its allied nations. But in any case, one of the examples of where it was quite challenging in terms of trying to demonstrate the political climate is in 1966. Now, Nkrumah had been the president of Ghana since 57. So it's just, you know, it's just under a decade. And he was on his way to China. Actually, I think he was going to Vietnam, but he stopped in China to have a visit. And he's one of the people who had allowed China to train African revolutionaries in Ghana, because Ghana was like Zambia, one of these frontline states that was allowing for different national liberation processes and fighters to be trained and to find, you know, headquarters there in their own countries being a bit of a challenging situation. But he was one of the people who had strong engagement with China. And in 1966, he was overthrown whilst he was on this visit, the coup happened against him Hmm. and immediately the new government which just shows you i think the kind of political relationships were aligned to a a u.s western project is the new government in Accra immediately sent 430 chinese staff including 13 guerrilla warfare instructors back to china and by the end of the year ghana actually had uh, charged china for attempting to support Nkrumah's return, basically, and they closed the Beijing embassy at the time. So things did come at a high cost. And I think these are the kinds of history I really wish I learned in high school, but unfortunately aren't super apparent. So the political stakes were super high. But I I wonder why nobody taught us this in high school. I'm sure it's just an omission, (laughs) right? I mean, they wouldn't purposefully not tell us our own history, right? What do the Backstreet Boys say? I wonder why. I wonder where. I wonder where they are. Oh, Mika, you're dating yourself. (laughs) 
But so, I mean, this was, a, this was, of course, a very challenging moment. But I mean, I don't know what you think about the kind of political stakes at the time, because China still had a relatively small presence, right? Totally. The stakes were super high. I mean, we can't forget that African liberation, at least physical liberation from colonialism, was a multi-decade process, you know, and... I would argue it hasn't ended up until today. As you rightly pointed out, uh, much of Francophone West Africa is actually still economically and financially, if not militarily, controlled by the French. So they never left. But we have to keep things in perspective. Uh, China's role in terms of African liberation on the armed resistance front was very much one of training and providing materials. So just to put this into context, Cuba. Cuba has been massively generous and supportive of Africa and African development and African liberation. At the height of Cuba's Africa deployment to fight against apartheid South Africa. Think of this. They actually sent 370,000 Cubans, many of them of African descent, to help fight against apartheid and apartheid aggression against uh, Angola, the apartheid occupation of what is now Namibia. So by 1986, we had 370,000 Cuban troops stationed and actively taking part in combat against imperialism and white supremacy in Africa. By contrast, Chinese troops in Africa at no point exceeded 20,000. And they were not deployed in combat roles. Instead, the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, was used to uh, conduct training uh, to reinforce um, ideological, economic, and soft power kind of initiatives. I think that's very telling. Which, for context, for people, imagine Cuba is the small island of, right now, I think there are around 11 million people or so. And China today is over 1.4 billion people. So it, it... you see, it's a totally different proportion. <laughs> That's different. <laughs> and gives you context. Uh, completely, completely. But one of them... Completely. I mean, there are less Cubans than Malawians, you know, <laughs> right now. And we tend to think of Malawi as a small country. I didn't even... I did not even have that as an awesome reference point now that I know. But one of the things, though, that I think was an interesting example uh, of the kind of ideological meets the military training is in Zimbabwe. You know, uh, my mother's from Zim. And in... In terms of the National Liberation Project there, the Zimbabwe Africa National Union, they had their National Liberation Army, which basically got ideological material and military training in the 1960s when, you know, Zimbabwe was trying to push against the white supremacist uh, Rhodesian government. And it was China's People Liberation Army that trained these Zanla soldiers in I think it was in Tanzania at the time. And part of it that was super interesting and successful in terms of the exchange was they were drawing on Mao and the Communist Party of China's guerrilla tactics that they were using during the civil war periods in the 1940s. And this was important because, you know, Zimbabwe is a predominantly or historically and presently a rural and peasant society. So they needed to use these guerrilla tactics based on, you know, the concepts of people's army and a people's war in order to be successful. So China definitely assisted on that front. And it wasn't long after that, that, you know, in 1980, Zimbabwe then gets its independence and it marks, you know, the demise of this colonial era. But I think 
the other one that I think is drawn a lot on, and you are, were primarily affected by it, and you weren't alive at the time. Um, Amadeus is not that old. Is this uh, Tazara, <laughs> the Tanzania Zambia? <laughs> not that old. Tanzania Zambia Railway. I don't know if you can tell us a little bit about that because I recall you were going past it quite recently. Yes, I was actually driving past a memorial for some of the workers who perished while building this really, really long um, railway line. So what you have to know in context of Tazara, that's the uh, Tanzania-Zambia railway, is that this is a 1,860-kilometer-long railway line through some of the toughest terrain in the world. Most Western engineers said it couldn't be done. There was a historical context here. You mentioned uh, the uh, racist, white supremacist UDI, um, regime in um, occupied Zimbabwe, then called Rhodesia, led by the arch nemesis Ian Smith. Zambia was a frontline state, and it was uh, hosting a lot of resistance fighters from South Africa, from Zimbabwe. And unfortunately, um, because of colonialism, our only access to the sea was through Zimbabwe to South Africa which were both under white supremacist occupation. And we desperately needed access to the sea for trade, for commerce, and to get necessities like medicine, industrial machines, clothing. Nobody was interested in helping Zambia. The United States and Europe were not interested in building Tazara. They said it wasn't going to be profitable. China stepped in and China did it. So this railway line connects central Zambia, like the deepest interior of Zambia, to the Tanzanian port of Dar es Salaam. And it was one of the largest and most important projects China has ever done in Africa. So this is just amazing. And mind you, China was doing this while it was still a poor country itself. It's not the China of today, you know? And uh, I think it's also important to note that this was also part of the Organization of African Unities. Uh, this is the predecessor to the uh, AU, the African Union today, uh, that existed between 1963 and 2002. I believe actually that the meeting where they agreed to rename the AU to, uh, so, sorry, the uh, OAU to AU was held in Lusaka, but I would need to fact check that. But anyway, there was a deliberate OAU strategy to reduce the dependence of frontline states like Zambia economically in terms of transport infrastructure on apartheid South Africa and other minority white regimes in the region. We mentioned uh, the uh, UDI regime in Zimbabwe. Let's not forget that up until uh, the mid-70s, Angola and Mozambique were also still occupied by the Portuguese imperialists. So um, this really, really, really helped relieve some of the pressure and allow countries like Zambia frontline states to focus on supporting liberation movements. And I think ultimately this this also helped to, you know, this kind of project and these kinds of exchanges of diplomacy allowed the AU or the OAU at the time to support Beijing in the crucial vote that enabled them to be restored into the United Nations in 1971. So again, we're not saying China's doing this out of pure altruism. It, it is of mutual benefit. And, and I, I, I do hate when people criminalize that or demonize mutual benefit like we want mutual benefit it's, it's bad to have a win-win situation where everyone gets what they want out of a situation come right. on that is so disingenuous like that that is so annoyingly disingenuous and false like 
oh wow how bad africa helps china china helps africa that is awful oh my gosh why would we do that yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry the sarcasm just comes out naturally with this hypocrisy but it's just amazing but anyway one thing to also keep in mind that the pla the people's liberation army provided huge technical support and training and physical labor the uh, railway engineering corps of the pla sent over 50,000 workers to join 60,000 young Zambians and Tanzanians, many of them in Zambia from the ruling UNIP party, uh, in Tanzania from the National Youth Service, to build the line, right? And these men worked hand in hand through very difficult, rough, hot, and dangerous. I mean, they're lions, they're snakes. Many people died because of that. And they work together to get this done, you know. So such uh, political, um, you know, economic and political uh, military ventures did generate a lot of goodwill for China, you know, in Tanzania, in Zambia. So China never really in Africa had to solely rely on military power. You know, there was a lot of cultural, economic exchange and cooperation that actually helped win China um, attention and positive attention and goodwill, you know, and we tend to underrate that and what that actually means for people. One interesting thing you said, we did have a thread on uh, the Dongsheng Twitter about this and a lot of people from Tanzania actually responded and said, we love Tazara. We are so grateful for Tazara because Tazara changed our lives. You know, Tazara took, there was one person who said Tazara took them to school. So going back to the memorial I drove by, Amazing, looks great. I've seen pictures on social media. I didn't know it was there. And this is really shocking. This is such a big part of Zambian history. It's been very poorly advertised. It wasn't open while I was there. And uh, it's a shame. But I'm looking forward to going there and maybe taking some pictures, maybe even shooting a video and sharing that with you at some point. No, I think like there's a, still a lot of history to be unearthed and marked and shared and understood. But what I do think that this makes me think about in terms of the kind of ideological, political alignments that were happening during the National Liberation Period is that recently I saw an article by Jevons Nyabiage, a Kenyan who writes for the South China Morning Post, basically talking about a new leadership school that's been funded and built by the Chinese Communist Party to train political party officials in Southern Africa. And it's been opened in Tanzania, basically based on a kind of the Beijing Chinese uh, governance model. And I think this is interesting because we haven't seen China take on such, I think, um, open or direct forms of political exchange in the kind of last three, four decades. We've seen, of course, Confucius Institute and that play, you know, more of a cultural role and more of an educational role. But this Mualimu Julius Nerera Leadership School, um, which, you know, China has provided, I think, 40 million in funding, was opened, um, I think it was last month, perhaps. And again, it's supposed to have this kind of party-to-party diplomacy and ideological exchange. So that really does beg the question of, like, where do we find ourselves in the China-Africa relationship? What are the trends around um, our exchange? And are we going to have more overt ideological you know, discussions and forms of of cooperation. And, you know, this week, this month, we are celebrating African Liberation Day in a moment in which we don't feel very liberated. We are plagued with hunger. We are plagued with poverty. Uh, Foreign militaries, even though 
we saw how the Malians kicked out the French recently, but we still have Loved huge, it. huge foreign military presence. And of course, big corporate interests that kind of steer and direct the life and the opportunities for African people who are largely exploited. Do you know 22 billionaires who are largely from Western nations have more collective wealth than the 320 million women in Africa. 22 men, 22. That's that's insane. And you know what's more insane? The most successful, quote unquote, successful African-American entrepreneur is Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> Elon Musk, the Tesla newly owner of uh, Twitter, who is actually South African, is African-American. Wow, interesting, interesting. But from this discussion, I think the things we can highlight as we wrap up is as we are thinking about our own liberation and what stage we find ourselves in this process, is there are, I think, three things we can glean from the China-Africa relationship and the historic role in the national liberation uh, processes that China played, is one, we do have these long-standing historical relationships that are based on mutual interests. Two, there's also a clear ideological component of anti-imperialism that I think demonstrates to us there's another way China recently, you know, in the pandemic year of 2020, eradicated extreme poverty. You know, this is a young, relatively young country of 70 years. You know, the UK, who struggled with the COVID pandemic, who has deep inequalities, had at least three, four hundred years of colonialism deal with their inequalities, but still hasn't managed to do kind of eradicate some of the kind of basic issues in society. And then three is we find ourselves in a very challenging geopolitical moment where we see that Western dominance is fracturing, Western alliances are up for question. This Ukraine moment is exposing a lot of the politics and you know interests of particularly the US. And for us, as we saw in the recent votes at the UN um, in support or against uh, Ukraine versus Russia, we're seeing that Africa looks quite divided and looks like they're taking a more non-aligned position because many people didn't say no, they actually just decided not to vote at all. And I think this is harking back to that non-alignment movement, which we could see a resurgence of in our in our contemporary moment. So I think that these are some of the issues that we find super interesting as we think about African liberation and what China's role has played historically. Indeed. We are at a critical moment, and I love this discussion, Mika. Always a pleasure to discuss these issues with you. Onward and upward. And uh, onward and upward. The crane. That's what we do. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to The Crane, brought to you by the Dongsheng Collective, visit dongshengnews.org where you can subscribe to our Media Digest and Chinese Voices series. Very, very interesting. Brought to you every weekend on Saturday and Sunday respectively. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast from and we look forward to having you with us again in the next episode. Bye-bye.